Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. And this is part two of our look back at 2023, which, as we stated in part one, was a year of resistance. Key to that resistance was telling the true history of exploitation of the global South by U.S. and European imperialist powers. 2023 marked 75 years since the 1948 Nakba genocide in Palestine, 50 years since the bloody U.S. backed coup of Salvador Allende in Chile, and it marked 200 years of the deadly U.S. Monroe Doctrine. The mushrooming migration from Latin America, Asia, and Africa to the rich nations of the world can only be understood and ultimately will only be resolved by a reckoning with the legacy of the colonial empires of the U.S. and other Western nations And 2023 will be remembered as the end of the U.S. unipolar moment. The center of the world economy is moving back to Asia, where the center of the world economy was for hundreds of years before the rise of European colonialism. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, part two of our year review begins on Christmas Day, 2023. Protesters gathered in the wee hours of the morning outside the home of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in Great Falls, Virginia, and later that day gathered again outside the DuPont Circle, Washington, D.C. home of National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. They carried signs splattered with red paint, and chanted on bullhorns, calling both Austin and Sullivan war criminals, declaring them guilty of genocide in the killing of more than 21,000 people, mostly women and children, in Israel's assault on Gaza during the past three months. Austin, Austin, rise and shine! Austin, Austin, rise and shine! No sleep during genocide! No sleep during We cannot begin this part two of our year in review without acknowledging with the alarm and urgency that it deserves, with the attention that it deserves, that a genocide is happening in historic Palestine, in real time, on our watch, and if we are here in the U.S. with our tax dollars. These tax dollars are also funding more than $100 billion to Ukraine and untold more for provocations in the South China Sea, and for undeclared wars against countries in Africa and throughout the global South. This economy of empire is the subject of our first story. Friend of the show, Ben Norton, editor of the Geopolitical Economy Report, analyzes how the U.S. proxy war against Russia in Ukraine continues to jumpstart massive changes in the world economy. The war in Ukraine will go down in history not only because of the significant political impact it had on the world, but also because of the profound economic changes that it created. This is not simply a war between Ukraine and Russia. It is a war between Russia and NATO, led by the United States. And top U.S. government officials, including the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, have said very clear that Washington's goal in the war in Ukraine was to weaken Russia. 
NATO countries have sent Ukraine tens of billions of dollars of advanced weapons and ammunition, and there have been special operations forces from the United States and numerous European countries on the ground in Ukraine helping to oversee this proxy war against Russia. But behind the scenes of the actual battles on the ground, we can see that this war is having very significant economic consequences. And in fact, by launching this new phase of the war that began back in 2014, when a U.S.-backed coup overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected geopolitically neutral government and installed a pro-Western government that made it clear that it was going to join NATO, by launching this new phase of the war in February of 2022, Russia was sending a very clear signal that it is no longer interested in trying to integrate with the West politically and also economically. And what we've seen as a result of this war, and specifically as a result of the very harsh sanctions that the US and European countries imposed on Russia, these have led Moscow to deepen its economic integration with Asia and deepen its political integration as part of a larger Eurasian bloc. Russia's largest trading partners are now China, Turkey and India. It is moving its trade increasingly away from the West, and it is doing much of that trade, by the way, in its own currency, the ruble, and also in the currency of other countries with which it is trading, like the Chinese yuan and the Indian rupee. And one of the biggest changes is that the market for Russian oil exports has completely moved out of Europe and is now firmly in Asia. In less than two years, Russia has replaced the European market with the Asian market and how this reflects the deep, profound changes in the world economy we are seeing today. The fact of the matter is that the BRICS bloc of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa now make up a larger share of the world economy than the G7, the group of colonial nations, including the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, Italy, Canada, and Japan. The BRICS countries represent roughly one-third of global GDP when measured at purchasing power parity, and the BRICS share of the world economy continues to increase over time as these economies grow, whereas the G7's share is shrinking over time. And by the way, I should point out that this is before BRICS expands. In the most recent summit of the BRICS in 2023, the bloc decided to add six new members. And I did a separate video and an article in which I discussed the very significant effect that this will have, in particular, the fact that now many of the world's leading oil and gas producers are now members of the extended BRICS bloc. But today I'm also going to discuss how the Western economic war against Russia is backfiring hard on Europe and destroying the industrial base of EU states like Germany. And there was a very interesting and revealing article published by the Spanish newspaper El País, very appropriately titled, Germany is staring at the end of its economic model. The report referred to Germany as the sick man of Europe and noted that 
While it's the world's fourth largest economy and Europe's biggest economy, Germany has a significant influence, especially as an industrial power, and yet that is very quickly changing. The article noted that the basis of the German economic model was the Chinese market, cheap Russian gas, and access to low-paid Eastern European labor. And now, with the increasing geopolitical tensions between the West and China that are being encouraged by the U.S. with these new Cold War policies, and furthermore, with the proxy war in Ukraine and the Western sanctions on Russian energy, Germany is now facing significant deindustrialization. El País pointed out that this is also fueling high inflation and an economic downturn, which is leading Germany into stagflation. If you look at data on manufacturing around the world, you can see that Europe is deindustrializing at breakneck speed much faster than any other region of the world, and the country that is deindustrializing the fastest is Germany. This graph looks at the manufacturing PMI, which is the purchasing managers index. And in this index, over 50 means a country has an increasing amount of manufacturing activity and under 50 means countries are having a decreasing amount. So the countries that are deindustrializing the fastest are Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic, the Netherlands, Poland, France, the UK, Italy, Canada, and the Eurozone as a whole. And not so coincidentally, the country that is re-industrializing, increasing its industrial manufacturing capabilities the fastest, is Russia. A very influential mainstream economist at the U.S.-dominated International Monetary Fund, the IMF, named Robin Brooks, he noted on Twitter that the French economy has also shown data going off a cliff. Levels of manufacturing and services in the economy are declining very quickly, and he noted that the economy is as weak as it was during the pandemic. Brooks wrote, quote, The Eurozone doesn't just have Germany as the sick man of Europe. There are a lot of sick men. And one of the main reasons for this is the proxy war in Ukraine. Many people act as though it's a mystery why the European economies are in such crisis, but a few Western officials have admitted this very bleak truth. And back in June, Germany's economic minister said that if Russian gas stops flowing to Europe, to Germany in particular, the country will deindustrialize. I'm reading here from a report in Bloomberg back in June, quote, Germany may be forced to wind down or even switch off industrial capacity if Ukraine's gas transit agreement with Russia is not extended after it expires at the end of next year, according to Economy Minister Robert Habeck, and by next year he meant 2024. Europe's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, made very similar comments, extremely revealing comments, back in October of 2022, in which he acknowledged that the economic model in the European Union as a whole, not just in Germany, was, quote, based on cheap energy coming from Russia and also, quote, access to the big China market. And now, with the new Cold War policies of the West and the sanctions on Russia and also increasingly on China, Europe is destroying this base of its economy and it's having severe consequences. Here is that clip from the EU foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell. 
Our prosperity has been based on cheap energy coming from Russia, Russian gas, cheap and suppose affordable and secure and stable, which has been proved not the case, and the access to the big China market for exports and imports, for technological uh, transfer, for investment, and for having cheap goods. I think that the Chinese workers with their low salaries has done much better and much more to contain inflation than all the central banks together. So our prosperity was based on China and Russia. Energy, a market. However, it's not just that. I should point out another significant factor, which is that the U.S. government is carrying out policies that are contributing to the deindustrialization of Europe by incentivizing companies in Europe to move their factories over to the U.S., where Washington is offering hundreds of billions of dollars worth of subsidies. And in fact, a top EU official acknowledged this, as was reported by Reuters back in October 2022 in an article titled U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, a risk to Europe's industrial base. And Reuters noted, I'm quoting and reading here from Reuters, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act and soaring energy prices pose a risk to some of Europe's businesses, according to the European Union's antitrust chief, Margaret Vestager. Of course, the soaring energy prices in Europe are caused by the Western sanctions on Russia and the EU's boycott of Russian energy. But the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act also includes $430 billion of spending, including huge subsidies for industries. And the EU antitrust chief noted, she said that the U.S. subsidies that are enabled by the Inflation Reduction Act are working in a way that, quote, puts at risk part of the industrial base in Europe. So this is a perfect storm that is destroying Europe's economy and the United States is benefiting. That was friend of the show, Ben Norton, editor of the Geopolitical Economy Report, analyzing how the U.S. proxy war against Russia and Ukraine has jump-started massive changes in the world economy. He goes on to detail how the global economy is no longer centered in the West, yet the U.S. and the EU continue to try and hold on to a world order that uses nations in the global South as resource colonies. But nations in Asia, Africa, and Latin America are fighting back. More on that in our next segment. On July 26, military leaders in the country of Niger, in the Sahel region of Africa, long colonized by France, staged a coup, which received popular support. And that military takeover followed similar takeovers in Burkina Faso and Mali, which ousted leaders viewed as political puppets of France. During the September 2023 meeting of the UN General Assembly, Burkina Faso's Minister of State, Basalma Bazi, delivered a powerful address expressing the voice of the Sahel population, which continues to suffer attacks from violent religious extremists unleashed in the Sahel region in the aftermath of the NATO-led destruction of Libya in 2011. The system of neocolonialism in the Sahel 
means, for example, that Niger's rich uranium ore has fueled more than a quarter of the EU's nuclear energy plants, while less than 20% of Niger's population has access to electricity and most live in poverty. Here is a portion of that speech. I now give the floor to His Excellency Basulma Bazi, Minister of State, Minister of Civil Service of Burkina Faso. Excellence. Excellency, distinguished president of the 78th session of the UN General Assembly, distinguished participants, on behalf of His Excellency Captain Ibrahim Traoré, president of the transition head of state, I convey to you the warm greetings of the people and government of Burkina Faso on behalf of the Burkina Bay people. I pay a humble tribute to the memory of those great world leaders who embodied the hopes and dreams for a just and equitable world through their commitment, determination, and sacrifice. I'm thinking in particular of Fidel Castro of Cuba, Patrice Emery Lumumba of Congo, Muribo Keita of Mali, Ruben Umnyobe and Felix Mumier of Cameroon, Sylvanius Olympio of Togo, Che Guevara of Argentina, Martin Luther King, and Malcolm X of the USA, Nelson Mandela of South Africa, Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, Amilcar Cabral of Guinea-Bissau and Cabo Verde, Marian Nugabi of the Republic of Congo, Captain Noel Isidore Toma Sankara of Burkina Faso, and others. These leaders were largely executed violently. Others were assassinated. They died in prisons or from poisoning. Their only crime in each case was embodying the dreams, ambitions, and hopes of the peoples that have been killed, raped, trampled, and pillaged. Mr. President, my presence at this august podium before the UN on behalf of Burkina Faso, country of upstanding men, is not to beat my breast in lamentation. And I am not here either to make a flowery speech. I was sent here to tell you that the lies of states, diplomatic hypocrisy, the thirst for power, the frenetic quest for profit, the diabolical spirit of domination and exploitation of man by man, these are the true wounds that poison our coexistence and drive all societies toward perdition, including our organization, the UN. His Excellency, Mr. Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN. His Excellency, Mr. Joe Biden, President of the United States. His Excellency, Dennis Francis, representative of Trinity, Trinidad and Tobago to the UN, elected president of the 78th session of the General Assembly. His Excellency, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, president of the Republic of Brazil. Allow me to hear, cite excerpts from your respective statements delivered at this very podium at the opening of this 78th session. First of all, and I quote, we are living in an upside-down world. Bodies litter the beaches where billionaires bask. Secondly, and I quote, we are at a crossroads. We have a common cause that is leaving to our children 
a world with a better social environment, end quote. The, for the third person, despite difficulties, we can emerge from this. What we lack is not ability but political will. Otherwise, we'd be able to provide progress and peace for all, end quote. And for the fourth personage I'm citing, quote, there's a dissonance between rhetoric and practice, the facts. The UN Security Council is paralyzed. The UN must shoulder its responsibilities in a world of solidarity and justice as laid out in the UN Charter. And this requires it to have the courage to fight inequality, end quote. The quintessence of these statements by these four August personages clearly shows that inequality throughout the world is deliberate. Otherwise, with a modicum of courage and political will, we would be able, if not to eradicate them, at least to minimize them. Indeed, every year we hear so many speeches as well as promises and commitments, but the proof of dissonance between rhetoric and facts on these issues relating to principles in the UN Charter, including justice, equality, dignity, integrity, self-determination, the sovereignty of states, the inviolability of territory, and respect for international law. The proof of this dissonance lies in what's happening in Libya, in the Sahel, especially in Niger, and the crisis between Russia and Ukraine. First of all, in Libya, after the catastrophic flooding, thousands of people lost their lives. To assuage our consciences, every nation rushed to provide their condolences and solidarity. This was, of course, to give the impression that we're living in a society and that we defend these values. Intellectual honesty requires, and the history of our conscience tells us, that we ought to sincerely apologize to the people, the Libyan people, for collectively and individually being complicit whether through pass uh, passiveness or active complicity, for supporting those butchers who caused the first man-made disaster in Libya. It was this disaster that brought Libya to its knees by looting it and by killing its guide before the flooding plunged it into further sorrow. And unfortunately, this human disaster was led by the UN under Resolution 1970, as well as the guilty silence and the complicity of ECOWAS and the African Union. This macabre intervention with Nicolas Sarkozy's France spearheading the effort killed the Libyan guide Colonel Muammar Gaddafi on October 20, 2011. If our condolences to the Libyan people had the slightest bit of common sense and were not hypocritical, then this murderous diplomacy would never have uh, taken place. And now Niger is en route to becoming a second Libya. Next, international relations are tainted by great diplomatic diplomacy with no conscience or morals, dignity or integrity, justice nor peace. And this is proven because there is a clear uh, hunger for devouring prey. Today, we unfortunately must see that contrary to the good faith statements made at this UN podium, which call for respect for the UN Charter and international law, 
leaders representing the people of Niger, this brotherly people, were essentially forbidden from, ex from accessing the UN headquarters. Burkina Faso strongly condemns this underhanded maneuver, which uh, seems to belong to the practices of the past. And this can only be explained by a loss in, uh, of essential values needed for any harmonious life in society. The UN should never be used as an instrument in the hands of any country. Pan-Africanist leaders who fought for African unity are grandparents who fell in dignity, shot by the colonialists. These great sons of Africa who sacrificed themselves for the honor of their continent, who fought fiercely against the slave trade and neocolonialism. All of them have had their eternal rest disturbed when they heard that a handful of exiles, African exiles, are holding Niger hostage. Yes, dear African continent, just a handful of your children have decided to humiliate you through the shameless lies of a state, starting with Niger. And therefore, I issue a sincere and solemn appeal to the people of Senegal, Benin, Niger, Ghana, Chad, Cote d'Ivoire, Guinea-Bissau, and all the people of Africa to stand up in fraternity and solidarity in Africa in order to prevent the imperialists from setting fire to Niger as they did in Libya. President, Secretary General, distinguished first participants, at this podium in the UN and before the entire world, I insist that ECOWAS, the African Union, and the UN must become true organizations of peoples instead of structures used by a minority of heads of state. They cannot be used and instrumentalized to destabilize brotherly countries by killing their leaders. This is the only way the UN Charter and International Law could have any meaning. That was Burkina Faso's Minister of State Basalma Bazi speaking September 2023 at the United Nations. In early December 2023, the foreign ministers of Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger met and recommended that the countries consolidate their plan to form the Alliance of Sahel States, which commits each country to come to each other's aid in defense against external aggression and encourages economic integration. And as you may have heard, Basama Bazi give tribute to fallen leaders of the global struggle for justice. We want to remember the artist and activist Harry Belafonte and the anti-apartheid leader Randall Robinson, both of whom joined the ancestors in 2023. And listeners to On the Ground, remember the tributes we gave to Harry Belafonte and to Randall Robinson this year and how we we're thrilled to join in the international recognition of these giants in the fight for social justice for the African diaspora and for the whole world. I know so many of our on-the-ground listeners will be receiving solicitations for donations. And I want to remind you that on the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored show, and we are a not-for-profit. We are a registered not-for-profit in the United States. So that means that anything that you give is tax-deductible. It could be that some of us are in a position to be very generous. And if you are, I ask you to please consider On the Ground in your end-of-year giving 
The easiest way to give is on our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show. You can also give on PayPal and find out other ways to give on our website on the ground dot org. But if you enjoy the show, if you check out the show, if you enjoy what we're able to produce as this labor of love, please join with us and uh, be an activist with us. Be an active agent of articulation in these perilous times and support independent media because we only have you to rely on. So again, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And also onthegroundshow.org has links to PayPal and the address to send a check if you can do that. But whatever you do, know that it will be much appreciated. Thank you. The ground beneath my feet.
2023, there were ongoing challenges to truth, to the people's ability to tell the truth. And that means teachers, librarians, even the activist Sean King was banned from his account on Instagram. He had millions of followers, one of the most successful, largest accounts on Instagram. But because of his advocacy for the people of Palestine, his sharing of images of Palestine, his support for resistance against the apartheid state, meaning support for the, the resistance in Yemen, blocking uh, seaports, his, his support for all the resistance fighters against the apartheid state, all the powers of, according to him, the powers of the corporation, the U.S. government, the Israeli government combined to strip him of his account, which he had almost since Instagram was launched. So, so much of it was about the theme of our show, which is telling the truth and, and telling the truth about the history of exploitation of the global South by U.S. and European imperialist powers and how 2023 marked 75 years since the 1948 Nakba genocide in Palestine, 50 years since the bloody U.S.-backed coup of Salvador Allende in Chile, and it marked 200 years of the deadly U.S. Monroe Doctrine. In April 2023, Code Pink sponsored a conference marking the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine and on the ground covered the major keynote address delivered by journalist Juan Gonzalez. Here is a portion of that, of that speech. When U.S. presidents turned the doctrine into a weapon of systematic oppression, Latin America, especially the Caribbean basin, became a U.S. dominion with North American adventurers repeatedly seeking to grab more territory. South America's great liberator, Simón Bolívar, grew so weary of the constant arrogance from our leaders in Washington that he declared before his death the United States seemed, quote, destined by providence to plague America with torments in the name of freedom. As thousands of U.S. businessmen and adventurers headed south of the border, Latin America became the birthplace of the first great multinational U.S. corporations, enriching some of the country's most celebrated families. The factual record of how the entire region was pillaged is so ample, so sordid, that it almost defies comprehension. And I don't mean the simple outright seizure and annexation of Texas and half of Mexico's territory during the Mexican-American War, territory that would later become California, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, and portions of Colorado and Utah. It was also the exploitation of Central and South America and the Caribbean islands. William Aspinwall, who made millions with his Panama Railroad in 1855, transporting North Americans across the isthmus from the East Coast to the California gold fields. Or Cornelius Vanderbilt's Nicaragua Transit Company. Or the psychotic episode of soldier of fortune, William Walker, who during his two-year rule as a dictator of Nicaragua in the 1850s, reinstituted slavery, declared English an official language of Nicaragua, and was welcomed at the White House. 
more than 11,000 North Americans moved to Nicaragua during Walker's reign, with three to 5,000 joining his occupation army. There was the infamous United Fruit Company, the first great U.S. multinational corporation, with plantations in Cuba, Honduras, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Colombia, its own railroads and shipping companies, the most powerful force in the region. There was the Havemeyer family, sugar trust that monopolized all sugar supplies to the United States with plantations in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, shipping all their produce to refineries in Brooklyn, Boston, and Baltimore under the name of Domino Sugar. There was the Guggenheim family with its massive investments in Mexican railways and the Hearst family with cattle ranches of more than a million acres in northern Mexico. During the late 19th century reign of dictator Porfirio Diaz, Mexico was basically sold off to foreign investors. By 1910, more than 40,000 North Americans had settled in Mexico. 15,000 of them had gobbled up land and they controlled 130 million acres. 27% of the entire surface area of Mexico was owned by U.S. citizens. Americans own 78% of Mexico's mines, 73% of its smelters, 58% of its oil, 68% of its rubber business. 1898, of course, was the climactic year for the creation of the U.S. colonial empires, has been stated with the seizure of Puerto Rico, Cuba, the Philippines, and Guam during the Spanish-American War. But the list of direct military interventions that ensued during the 20th century is mind-boggling. The sponsoring by Teddy Roosevelt and the U.S. Navy of a whole country, Panama, just so Americans could secure land to build the Panama Canal. Interventions in Nicaragua five different times, including the war against Sandino liberation fighters from 1926 to 1933 and the CIA funding of the Contras in the 1980s. Mexico invaded three times, Honduras twice, Cuba three times after 1898, not counting the CIA-sponsored Bay of Pigs fiasco in 1961. Guatemala and the Arbenz coup in 54. Chile and Allende coup in 1973. The Dominican Republic invaded three times, including President Johnson's sending of thousands of U.S. troops in 1965 to squash a people's revolt for democracy. Haiti in 1915 and again in 1994. Panama again in 1918, 1925, 1989. If Latin America had not been pillaged by U.S. capital since its independence, millions of desperate workers would not now be coming here in such numbers to reclaim a share of of that wealth. And, And if the United States is today the world's richest nation, it is in part because of the sweat and blood of copper workers of Chile, the tin minders of Bolivia, the fruit pickers of Guatemala and Honduras, the cane cutters of Cuba, the oil workers of Venezuela and Mexico, the pharmaceutical workers of Puerto Rico, the ranch hands of Costa Rica and Argentina, the West Indians who died building the Panama Canal, and the Panamanians who maintained it. But all that exploitation sparked a result the empire never expected. By World War II, with migration from Europe closed off, the U.S. initiated the Bracero program, 
recruiting and contracting as many as 350,000 Mexican workers a year and tens of thousands of Puerto Ricans to work in U.S. factories and fields. The result of all that labor contracting and all the instability our foreign policy created has resulted in multiple Latino migration waves to the U.S. differing not only in their ethnic and racial characteristics, but in their classic origins. Throughout all of this, the Monroe Doctrine has been the excuse for U.S. meddling. It has never been renounced by the U.S. Even the Pope and the Vatican finally rejected this year the doctrine of discovery. The white supremacist theory that justified European domination of the native peoples of America. But our government still clings to Monroe's words. America under Washington control. Thankfully, most Latin American nations no longer follow dictates from the U.S. Recent elections in Mexico, Honduras, Colombia, Brazil, and Chile have brought progressive governments to virtually the entire region. And China's rise in the world economy has meant new loans and financing for the region's needs without the same strings that always came with loans from the Western banks. Our immigration crisis, however, is not unique. Ever since the end of World War II, the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America of the third world of the global south have been coming to the West. England doesn't know what to do about all the Pakistanis, Indians, and Jamaicans. France doesn't know what to do about all the Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans. Germany doesn't know what to do about all the Turks and Syrians. The Netherlands about all the Indonesians. And in the United States, our leaders have grappled for decades with what to do about all the Latin American and Caribbean peoples and increasingly Africans and Asians that have migrated here. The key thing to understand is that the migrations have come from the very countries those metropolitan powers once colonized or dominated. And in recent years, we've seen the heartbreaking images of boat people crossing the Mediterranean to get to Italy, Greece, and the Balkan states, with thousands perishing at sea in their attempts, but tens of thousands reaching Europe, many corralled into camps and detention centers. Where do these refugees come from? from Syria, from Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, countries where during the past two decades our own government's military interventions, occupations and targeted bombings and assassinations have tragically led to greater violence and instability than previously existed. The sudden surge of people fleeing one country for another did not arise from thin air or from individual decisions made to simply seek a better life in another country. Rather, there are manifestations of profound flaws in the economic and political systems of our modern world. Much of it, I would submit to you, is the unintended harvest of past colonial empires and of a new stage of economic and political domination where the U.S., an empire in decline, is determined to use its military might to master the world, a rules-based order where Washington makes all the rules. That was journalist Juan Gonzalez giving a major keynote address at a conference sponsored in 2023 by Code Pink, marking the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. First articulated by U.S. President James Monroe in 1823. And it's so important for us to recognize the Monroe Doctrine. We're so happy to have been able to document 
this important anniversary and the coverage and the and the marking of it here in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. Now, in less than a month after Operation Al-Aqsa Flood, when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, Israel killed thousands of Palestinians in Gaza and, and hundreds more in the West Bank with a stated goal of flattening Gaza and moving the entire population to the Sinai Desert of Egypt. 
In response to the genocide, on November 2023, the largest march for Palestine ever held in the United States brought between 300,000 and a half million people to Washington, D.C., who rallied at Freedom Plaza and then marched to the White House. Those demonstrations have continued here in Washington, D.C. Almost daily, protests are happening at the White House, at the Capitol, and in various other public spaces to remind lawmakers that the people, the majority of the American people, want a ceasefire now and that we don't want our tax dollars used to commit genocide in Gaza. I'm not out here to beg the system for a change. Movement ends 
Yasmin from the group Maryland to Palestine speaking outside Union Station on November 17, 2023. We'll have the last word on today's show, which was part two of On the Ground's look at the tumultuous 2023. Lona, I said that again for you. So I'm declaring that the global movement for a free Palestine, the entire global movement for a free Palestine is on the ground's person of the year. I'm declaring that. All right. Now you can hear part one of our year in review on our website at onthegroundshow.org. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, X, or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. You can also write to us at contact at on the ground show.org. And I'll link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averum. That's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. See you on the gram. The music we played this hour included... El Pueblo Unido, Hamas Sarah Vencido by Inte Ilimadi. It's Your World by Gil Scott Heron and Brian Jackson. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. The Free Palestine Movement is continuing with actions. You can follow actions at shutitdownforpalestine.org and at answercoalition.org. And actually breaking news, the next National March on Washington for Palestine will be on Saturday, January 13th, 2024. The Answer Coalition is the national partner for this massive mobilization, which is sponsored by organizations from the American Muslim Task Force for Palestine. And you can get more information at answercoalition.org. And we'll be reporting, as we can, on more information about this next national march because we know on November 4th between 300,000 and a half million people came here in the largest march for Palestine in U.S. history. So we're doing it again. We're coming out in full force to show our support for a free Palestine. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. I would say Happy New Year, but let's just say Justice in the new year. Peace. I didn't mean to take up all your sweet time. I'll be right back one of these days. Man, try to take it up. But I'll see you no more in this world. I'll be trying to take it up. I don't need it.
On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check all that information is there but please please support us i want to thank our supporters on patreon so much and for those who are already supporting if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up we need the support patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the thank you <laughs>